Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. My next guest first came to attention as the Sydney Rose in the Rose of Tralee seven years ago. She subsequently moved here and she's now a writer and an Irish Times columnist. And I suppose she casts a, a wry eye kind of over Ireland and, and the Irish. Brianna Parkins, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Brianna, you're a very funny, astute uh, observer of us. I would say you just keep it on the right side of insulting <laughs> us. It's, this is done with, with, with affection and, and wit and uh, that kind of thing. Maybe re- before we get to all that, remind us first of, of the Rosa Tralee. You know, How did you end up in the Rose of Tralee? It's funny you say that I came to attention in the Rose of Tralee. Maybe yeah. your attention, but I was a journalist in my home country before that for, for many years. Yes. Yeah, uh, People just think I seem to have just appeared in a ball gown one day and then just lucked to into journalism. To what you did, it was like dropped out of the sky. <laughs> no, I was working in investigations and I had covered... Uh, the Royal Commission into basically uh, child abuse in, in institutions. I had quite a different life path. And then I yeah. entered the Rosa Tralee. I think if you grow up um, the daughter of Irish immigrants in any major city in Australia, at some point someone will ask you, when are you doing the Rose or which one in the family is doing the Rose? And you just it's just a constant thing that it's in the background. And I Did kind you of have a very Irishy kind of upbringing? Um, I did and I didn't compared to some people. So I had an, I have an Australian father and um, he would not let me do Irish dancing as he's like, why would do I wish you want to go around looking like she's got a pole stuck up a bum? Um, very Australian dad response. Also because yeah. Irish dancing is incredibly expensive. So my dad's sort of aversion to spending money got me out of that one. Um, but we definitely always had Irish music. We, we you know, had a grandfather who would blare like probably really inappropriate um, rebel tunes while picking me up from primary school, you know, and I'd be like uh-huh. hiding down like in the diddly eye music, like, God, Jesus Christ, they're so weird. And my granny would bring a teapot to the beach. Like imagine going to Bondi Excellent, Beach. Excellent, yeah. Right? Did she have milk in the Lucasade bottle as well? I don't, I can't remember the Lucas. like we had Lucasade. So we had, I think you could buy fresh milk from the shop, but okay. she would bring a teapot to the shop. And imagine Bondi, everyone's tanned, all the Australians have got like their fish and chips, everyone's very cool. And here we are, like the big fresh off the boat immigrants with uh-huh. a teapot on the sand. So that was my upbringing. Okay. So your grandparents then had come like straight from Ireland. They were still very Irish, yeah? Yeah. They, um, if you, my my partner there met my my granddad at Christmas and he was like, when did he arrive? Like 50 years ago. <laughs> um, he sounds, if he gets into a taxi, taxi drivers assume he's just come from the airport. He still has a very, he's from the Liberties and he sounds like he's just stepped out of the Liberty Bell off Meath Street, off Francis Street there, yeah. Yeah. And did you used to come back here as a kid? Like very rarely, I say back. yeah. It did was, you used to come here? We did, yeah. but it was so expensive. So it was just sort of out of our thing to do regularly. And I think that was the, the, the same for a lot of Irish immigrants around probably from the 70s, really up and even now today, it's still really expensive, but it was just almost impossible. I can't really remember much. I remember lots of smoke <laughs> in yeah. the pubs. That's what I remember, <laughs> like thinking it was a smoke machine, but it was cigarettes. Yeah, those were the days. Um, so the Rosa Tralee then. No, so it wasn't, you weren't a Rosa Tralee kind of gal then, were you I, really? I mean, I think the phrase Rosa Tralee kind of girl is interesting because I didn't grow up with the festival. So you have to understand that my understanding of it was literally like a photo of a girl holding some roses. That was my understanding. And then I looked up who, you know, a bit about the competition before I entered it. And Maria Walsh had just won it. And he was this, you know, um, 
advocate for the for the LGBTQ community, a really strong outspoken woman. I'm like, okay, this festival is is modern. It's you know, there's, yeah. it's representative of all women. It's definitely got a place for me. So I never went into it with like, a, oh, you have to be this kind of way to be a rose. Yeah, I just rocked up, and um, there was a three thousand dollar prize if you won the Sydney Rose and I needed a new laptop at the time. So it was like, worst comes to worst and I win this thing, I can buy myself a new laptop. Yeah. So then you went home then after the Rose actually, but you had obviously liked it here because you came back to live here then. Yeah, I really, I mean, I was here during repeal and I loved it. I loved every second working on the campaign. I loved the people that I met and there was something, I went back and I had a good job at the ABC and I'd just been made, I was about to be made permanent, a good pensionable job. And there was just something missing. I I couldn't settle back in and I was a bit restless. And then TV3, when it was still TV3, advertised a, a job for a reporter and I went for it and got it. You've written about the gentleness you find here and then also the crack. Yeah, there is a much more gentle approach to life in the sense that things are less urgent. So when I came here, I got endlessly frustrated with coffee shops, with even McDonald's, because there seems to be no sense of urgency. What I found when I first arrived here with people, I'm like, I've got to get to work. I've got to get to the bus. And then here's Mary having a chat with the the woman serving. And they don't care if you're late because they're catching up about Mary's latest renovation and the wallpaper she's put on her lounge room. And I had to learn to adjust to that way of life, which is, you know, Take calm down. You don't have to get things done straight away. There's a there's a there's a way of doing things. If you want something out of someone, and they have a meeting with you, you have to do like the, the ten minutes of just sort of mindless chat. And then at the end, it's almost like, oh, by the way, can you please do this X, Y, and Z? There's a preamble, and I think the gentleness really also shows itself in in public debate and public discourse. You know, I'm from Australia, which do is... Do you think, yeah? It actually is way more, um, I would say, sensible in some ways um, because you don't have what you have in the UK and Australia and the US where you have like a, you know, left and right and things get thrown in the middle for culture wars. So things like trans rights and, and children accessing healthcare turns into a battle between left and right rather yeah. than healthcare. I thought in Australia, nobody really cared about no, politics day to it, day. It is very, I, people, everyone cares about politics because you all have to vote. So it's mandatory voting um, and people are very engaged, but also people are very easily swayed by, you know, I would say not great reporting on both the left and right side, to be honest, there's a lot of spin and people really get entrenched into the, like there's like green koala hugging lefties or there's like heartless conservatives and there's no in between. Whereas Ireland kind of, if you try to get away with the sort of Piers Morgan stuff here, people will just look at you and be like, are you well? Do you know what I mean? There's, there's, you can't really yeah. fool people here. There's no room for pretenders. I don't think in Ireland. Okay. You're making us feel great about, about <laughs> ourselves now. And then, the crack, which again, like people would think, are you not having the crack down in Australia? Like, and you're having the crack in the sun as well. I mean, I think it's location. Like, Australia's big. It's it's almost the size of America. So it's we don't I know. really. It's I massive. Know. I know that. So I would say I'm I'm from Sydney, and we can be awfully like crack facts, like crack vacuums, really, minus yeah? crack. Oh God, people love Bondi and around the area. And I think that's where the, that's where the crack deficiency really starts. Like these are people who go to yoga at 6am and, you know, like are obsessed with green juices and cleansing and crystal and auras. And then they all go out and they're home by midnight, 
Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's, okay. So yeah. don't go to Bondi Beach. That's my that's my anti-tourism campaign. But yeah, I think Sydney siders are obsessed with looking good, and that doesn't necessarily mean having a good time. Yeah, yeah. Have Have you found at all though that there can be a tyranny to the crack? The yeah. crack can be a rod to your back as well. You think you can manipulate anyone into doing something stupid by saying, <laughs> by accusing them of being shite crack or don't be shite yeah, crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it can be a bit dangerous. And you do see it in drinking culture around. Someone's like, oh, I'm not drinking here. I'm just having one. And you do feel that social pressure of like, you know, you should come down to our level and abuse your body. Mm-hmm. Um. I see that you exposed yourself to rural Ireland as well during the pandemic. So your boyfriend is an actual culture, yes? Yeah, he is. A, Did a, you know this? Um, I knew in theory, but not. I didn't understand what the practice entailed. Yeah. Uh, so I met him in Dublin. So I met him out of context, right? I yes. met him not in his natural habitat. And he was dressed very hipster. He had the glasses and the little tattoos and all that kind of jazz. And we went down during lockdown. We ended up staying in his home house, which is in rural Galway. It's up near Tume, North Galway. And all of a sudden, like, his accent started changing. There was just, like, gravy poured on everything. (laughs) Started really complaining about the price of stuff and just, like, showing me fields. Like, And I just, like, that is a grand big field. Yes, it's a big paddock to me. So I understood that actually, because people said to me, our cultures are different. So I, I grew up with inner city dubs who, you know, really dislike cultures. And I was warned about these mythical creatures. And um, I just thought, you know, I, I think you're lying because, uh, you know, Ireland doesn't have proper multiculturalism in the same way Australia does. So you're just making up differences about yourself to keep yeah. things interesting. But no, there is a distinct, uh, there's a distinct different cultural practices. And yeah, it's been really interesting. And you did bring the culture down to meet the inner city dubs down in yeah. Sydney, yeah, that went, I was surprised. He just got slagged from the minute he walked in the door. And my granddad went, to, my, my granddad's a quite a big man. Yeah. Um, and he went to shake his hand. I think he broke every finger. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We all know that handshake. In his hand, yeah, like yeah. just displaying, like my granddad's in his 80s. Like he's barely, you know, I don't know how his heart's still going. Um, but he was there, you know, still intimidating my boyfriend. And he just, yeah, just had all these jokes about boggers and was just like, could you have not done any better? Do you know what I mean? Like we gave you this life, Brianna, in Australia. Yeah. And what do you do? You go back down to a boy who literally digs things out of the bog. He did ask him if he had road frontage, didn't he? He did. He was like, <laughs> do you have road frontage? And it was something that we joke about, my partner and I, because he tried to impress me with this. He's yeah. like, oh, I have road frontage. And I was like, "That." so you have land facing the road. He's like, yes. And I was like, you, you do understand that in, in summer I go on yachts in Sydney Harbour, right? And he's like, but look at this this lovely bit of mud on the side of the road. Yeah, but listen, you might want that bit of mud <laughs> at some stage because you are a renter and it's a topic you write about quite a lot, the, the, the difficulties of people your age and housing and everything and compared to maybe the life you could have in Australia. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite, it's quite a, a difficult topic because I do get people asking me, probably once a day and lots of young people, but actually people veering towards their 40s now, to be honest, contact me and say, should I go to Australia? What do you recommend? Life is just getting hard in Ireland. And I would always kind of be quite diplomatic and weigh it up and be like, look, you can't, 
Australia has a very different lifestyle. Um, it doesn't have the casual, uh, we'll just meet up on the weekend. You have to make plans of people sort of months in ahead, especially if you're in Sydney because the traffic is so bad. So you go 10 kilometres down the road, but it'll be a 40-minute drive, okay. depending on where you are. So life is very scheduled. It's regimented. It's not as relaxed. It's not as community-orientated. We aren't great at, um, I think because our government provides so much that we're not great at looking after each other on a social level. I think you would really miss that about Ireland. But these are all things that you can't feed your children with or pay a mortgage with or, you know, get health care with. These, these are things that don't make doctor's appointments. So unfortunately, I've been saying to people more and often is, yeah, if I think life is definitely easier in Australia. I think it's easier to get ahead if you have children that require any kind of, you know, medical attention. You know, I have ADHD. There's a strong chance that, well, not strong chance, but they say about 30% chance that children of mine will have, you know, okay. ADHD as well. And that's already a conversation that we're having because there's no, like the services here are not great. Mm. We've seen what's happening in CAMS. We've seen what's happening in the schools. And that's already a consideration. Does all this stuff work in Australia? It does. Um, I, it's funny. I gave out about it all the time when I was there. And and I think as a journalist, it's your job to to find people who've been let down by the system and to agitate for change. Mm. That's, that's what we do. That's our bread and butter. Um, and I look back and I never paid for a thing. I never paid for one consultant, one psychiatrist, one doctor, nothing. I think I paid for a crown on my tooth. And in Ireland, I'm down thousands of dollars a year. And that's on top of my health insurance. That's, like, that's not including my health insurance. That's the excess. So with the health insurance, I think, and lack of pension, it comes out to I'm down nearly 8,000 euro a year just by living in Ireland. And is this the... the ADHD being the big cost there, is it? Um, it is now, but, you know, I anything like gynecologists, like just the sort of the standard bits yeah. um, cost a lot here. And there's always like the way well, you could go through the, the public system, but you'd be waiting years. And, you know, I, I, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but I can pay for a consultant. You know mm, what I mean? I won't, yeah. I won't, I'll just dig into my savings. But a lot of people can't do that. And that's the scary. That's the scary thing, thinking about all these people who are living undiagnosed in the community, you know, you see stories every day in Ireland of easily preventable deaths. Just, you know, the the notes went in the system. The ward was not staffed. You know, doctors missing certain things. Um, mental health services not picking up, even though they were warned because they just didn't have the staff. I think that's the real tragedy of Ireland is that there are so many preventable things, but the bureaucracy isn't there. Yeah. Your own journey to the ADHD diagnosis was a bit of a long one as well, was it? Yeah, it was really embarrassing to get diagnosed at the age of 30, I think. Um, so I'd always had sort of a low level anxiety and, you know, people just put that down to like, oh, she's when I was younger. Oh, she's just a high achieving nervous girl. I think there's this uh, unfortunate non-medical terminology which is a complete bias that oh girls are just okay. highly girls strong are conscientious. girls are conscientious like mm. no we have anxiety or we have other problems <laughs> we're just masking and it's all horrendous inside um but yeah so I've had that on and off my whole life people thought I had depression I was like I'm not depressed I I tried everything you could think of yoga meditation um all different therapies, medication, nothing ever worked. And I have seen one therapist and they were like, have you been screened for ADHD and, and autism and sort of just neurodiversity in general? And then I started reading. A lot happened in lockdown. A lot of people started getting diagnosed late in life in lockdown because mm -hmm. they were alone with their own thoughts and they all the other systems fell away. And they're like, hang on a second, I'm different to everybody else. So I was reading about 
I think there's a BBC presenter who got diagnosed in his 50s and I was, he did a podcast and I was like, hang on a second, these are all really oddly specific <laughs> things. Okay. That I, you know, really weird stuff that I just thought was my personality turns out were symptoms. So Okay. So is that like coming home then or is like a great weight taken off you when you suddenly realise, okay, that's what it is? No, I thought it would be. And I think I had so much hope that this medication, and I think parents do too when, when their children get diagnosed, that things like Ritalin and, and Lysdexamphetamine will just be like, oh, it'll be like a magic pill and it'll make things work. And it definitely helps, don't get me wrong. So are you on, you're on Ritalin or you're Ritalin uh, no. just for kids? No, so no, Ritalin's for adults yeah. in different different doses. So I'm on the other one, Lysdexamphetamine. Um, which is more of a like speed-based drug um, and they're all amphetamines okay. to a degree. But, so do you feel speedy? No. Okay, so, so it doesn't have that effect on someone who has ADHD then? Probably the opposite effect. I think you can feel, sub, like you will get some maybe bursts of energy. I don't know, it's different for everybody's chemistry, right? Um, but it just lets me be able to slow down and think one thought at a time, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, I can actually articulate what I'm doing. Um, but to be honest, the biggest thing for me has been changing the way I live my life and and doing therapy and going into occupational therapy because I can't live like a neurotypical person. I'm not going to get up at 6am and have a to-do list and have a planner. It's not going to work for me. I have to work for systems that work with my brain. Okay, so is it your, one of your issues is you can't organise yourself? Is yeah. it just... I mean, in, the, I, in the low level way we all organise our lives. I can organise myself, but not in the way that other people do. Can so, you give me an example? <laughs> can, yeah. Uh, the one I give is when people, you know, say, oh, I just have to put in my diary that I have to bring um, this folder to work and I have to bring my charger and make sure I bring my running gear because I'm, I'm playing sport after work and the, you know, for tag rugby. So I'm just going to uh, pack my bag the night before and like, I won't do that. But what I will do is I put all the important stuff that I possibly need or need to remember to do before I leave the house, right where I put my feet when I get out of bed. So I have to step on it. And then at that moment, okay. I'm like, oh, okay, that's the stuff I need, which horrifies some people. Also, I've given up on matching socks. I just buy white socks. I don't bother matching them. There's always... Oh, yeah, totally. I, I, I mean, throw them into yeah, the drawer. Uh, you know, I'm typical and yeah. I, do, I do that. That's the, it's the only way to go. It's stuff yeah. like that. But I think... ADHD is very gendered. I think if you're a boy, you get away with being disorganised a little bit more. Oh, really? Yeah. Whereas a girl, you learn very early on that the most important thing you have to be is neat and tidy. And I think the punishments okay. for not being neat and tidy and organised and, you know, I think unfortunately society punishes you in ways that get worse because as you have children, it's like, well, she's a bad mother because she forgot sports day or she forgot their lunchbox. So I think women with ADHD often have the extra thing of being punished socially for, for not being able to interact in a normal way. Well, neurotypical way. Okay. So is life easier now? I wouldn't say it's easier. I think I'm more comfortable in myself and I'm better at setting boundaries and I'm better at saying I used to overcompensate so much and I would do all these things because I, in my head I'd be like, they're going to find out about me one day and I need to do all this extra work to impress them so they won't find out that I'm weird and different. And now I just feel comfortable doing the same amount of work as everybody else and, and slowing down and taking care of myself first. Yeah, and you got into exercise as well and, and that, that's helpful. You yeah. wrote a very interesting piece recently, which is the, this notion that the people out exercising... <laughs> 
are the healthy people. No, <laughs> they're we're, not. We're we're fighting demons out there. Yeah, yeah. No normal person. My dad is a fireman, um, and probably has some sort of neurodiversity himself. But you know, he's like, I've retired now. I don't need to know. <laughs> um, he, you know, rose up very high in the fire brigade from from nothing. Um, but he would have seen a lot, and he would have had a lot of trauma. And he's, you know. Yeah, he, he would have seen, he, you know, a young girl was uh, in a court case. She was found dead, basically nearly dead in the house. He discovered her and, you know, um, got to her in time. But he, she was my age at the time and she was raped and it was just awful. So I remember I asked him about it. I was like, how did you deal with all this stuff? And, and you never went off on post-traumatic stress leave. You never brought it home. And he's like, yeah, did you not notice that I took up running <laughs> at yeah. the exact same time. And that's what he did. He just exercised, he ran, he biked, he swam, and that's what worked for him. Um, and I always did exercise when I was younger. I was quite a good athlete um, to the extent that I was just very tall for my age. <laughs> so I was this like prodigal athlete and then everybody else caught up to me yeah, in, in yeah, puberty. It turns yeah, out I wasn't, yeah. I was just tall. Um, and so I was doing really well in school because I had this. And then when I left school, was at university and left university, wasn't doing all the sport as much, trying to work full time. That's when things got difficult. So when I introduced the sport back into my life, it got easier. But again, I don't do sport for the enjoyment. And as my dad says, no one who runs a marathon outside the Olympics is mentally well. I, do, I don't <laughs> think they should call it running. I think they should call it running away is, yeah. it, is its full title, Literally actually. running away from yeah. your problems. Okay, listen, um, that's, that's all super. You're working on a book? I am, yeah. I if, if my About pub- all this kind of stuff? If my publisher is listening, I know I said I'd give it to you Monday, but I'm giving it to you Sunday night, I promise. I'm going to go home and do it now. I'm just doing the final little bits. Um, it basically is, it's, it's as I say, things that were uh, probably not funny at the time, but now things I can laugh about is, the, is kind of the pitch for the book. Okay, great. Well, we look forward to talking to you again then. Brianna Parkins, <laughs> thank me. you very much. We'll take a break.